Welcome. This talk was recorded at Insight LA in Long Beach. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit us at InsightLA.org. One of my teachers suggested trying some long, deep breaths through the nose and some through the mouth and then noticing the difference, if there is a difference. Make a note also as you're taking these long breaths, and Don and I are continuing to admit people into the, the room, the Zoom room, where you sense your breath most prominently. Notice that. Where do you sense your breath? You start by holding the awareness of our group this morning. How we've arrived together to practice, to share the Dharma, to spend this time together. And wishing everyone, sending everyone some metta, some loving kindness. spreading it through our Zoom room. A wish for some stillness, some ease this morning, some calm. The sweetness of being together. See if you could radiate that felt sense of caring for each other. To all the little boxes in our Zoom room. To everyone's household and pets. And just kindness for our intention to practice deeply together. Allowing your posture to be upright, relaxed, but dignified, balanced. 
and taking a moment to notice the touch points of the body. How your feet land on the floor. How your body meets the cushion or chair. The felt sense of the hands touching each other or the legs. Just by bringing awareness into this body, the mind settles into the body. We slow down that bouncing around and the time travel, thoughts going in so many directions. We bring the mind into the body. Bringing your awareness to the top of the head, the forehead, noticing any stress or tightness, tension, holding. And if you like, taking a breath or two here. Breathing in some fresh energy. And on the exhale, letting go, softening. An invitation, not a command. Noticing the muscles around the eyes. The cheek and the jawbone. even the muscles around the mouth. And with every in-breath, allowing the tension, the tightness to soften, to release if possible, to let go. allowing all the muscles around the mouth and the face just to relax. Moving your awareness to the back of the neck, shoulders, just noticing what's there. Acknowledging we store tension and tightness, stress. And bringing in that fresh breath.
you like letting the shoulders drop and soften, letting the arms drop and hands release down into the earth. Giving yourself permission just to let go in this moment. Each breath is an invitation to soften, release, relax. Fully allowing relaxation to enter into the mind and body, the breath. The sweetness of letting go of thought. Expectation. Wanting. Letting it all go. And scanning the whole body for tightness and tension. Softly releasing. And if you like, picking up the breath. And you can add counting or a word. Allowing that breath to become an anchor. Really notice that awareness can hover right over that breath. Holding the felt sense, the movement of that breath. Perhaps even noticing the soothing quality of this breath, the gentle nature of the breath. Hovering around 
this full inhale from beginning to end. The full exhale. Awareness is gentle and soft. So when this mind wanders off, gently bring it back, kindly come back. Allowing the rhythm and the flow of the breath in the field of awareness.
Again, if the mind wanders, coming back to the movement, the flow of the breath. can even experiment with allowing the breath to flow through the entire body, widening the field of awareness to include the whole body breathing. In the last few moments of our sit, I invite you to expand the awareness from the breath to awareness itself, awareness of space around the body, awareness of the whole body in space.
perhaps noticing the space in front of you, above you, to the sides, in the back, below. Awareness holding breath, body, space, thoughts, sound, And perhaps allowing yourself to rest in that sense of spacious awareness. Fast, wide, and open.
So welcome everyone. It's great to see all of you here today. And um, we don't have time to say hello to each other, but I hope we will have time for some meaningful dialogue. The topic of the talk today is um, what is karma anyway? And uh, the way we arrived at this topic, in case you're interested, <laughs> is that Bonnie, who's here today, uh, said to me a couple of months ago, I really think you should talk about karma. What is karma anyway? Um, and my first thought was absolute resistance. Oh, not that subject, uh, because it is such a difficult one. And you could give a Dharma talk for a year on karma alone. It's quite a difficult subject to dissect. But at the end of my retreat, which ended this week, uh, I, I've been on this extended joyful retreat. We did equanimity phrases. Uh, to end the retreat. And one of the phrases, those of you who have practiced equanimity, is um, all beings are heir to their karma. And as I was repeating it, I remembered Bonnie's voice, what is karma anyway? So I posted that uh, out of curiosity from repeating the phrases. And the next day, uh, the word karma became the most posted word on social media. <laughs> uh, karma has been on people's minds, needless to say. And uh, I thought there was some um, synchronicity there, you know, what is karma anyway, maybe a good time to talk about karma. So the word karma predates Buddhism, it comes from India, and probably um, from the Hindu traditions. And in the Buddha's time, uh, it was really believed that you were born into your karma. It was very rigid and solidified, and there was a case system. So if you were born a servant or a menial worker or a prince or a king, that was your karma. It was determined before you were born. It was a very rigid way of thinking about it. And the Buddha actually rejected that. He rebelled against that. Another form of karma popular at that time was the uh, belief that you could earn good karma by pleasing the gods. And in the Hindu tradition, there's Krishna and Ganesh and uh, Lakshmi and all these wonderful god and goddess uh, deities. And so people would go to the temples and they would make offerings and do ritual and do ceremony and donate money to the priests to do the ceremony to earn good karma. So I could earn my karma by ritual. And the Buddha was very much against that. One of the um, con contributions of S.N. Goenka, a very famous um, Vipassana teacher, and I think at least two of you today have been on his retreats. Um, I think Jane and Anthony, and there are probably more of you who have gone on his retreats and listened to his teachings. Lots of um, 
people from India would come to him. I think he was from India or Southeast Asia somewhere. And the first thing he would say in his um, public lectures, which I've attended many of them, is um, do not do ritual to earn karma. There's nothing in it. You know, you can't buy your karma. You can't earn it. And then, you know, of course, there is also the belief that the world is just filled with incidents happening and there is nothing that you do or say that uh, causes actions to happen, which he rejected also. So what did he teach when he talked about karma? Um, and I'm going to apologize ahead of time because I am not a scholar nor an intellectual. And I'm not really interested in, um, you know, succinct intellectual understanding. So I will apologize to you right now. But what did he say? Um, there were, he sat down um, under the tree, the famous tree, and became enlightened, the night of his enlightenment or the day of his enlightenment. And there were three teachings that came out of that. And I'm, I'm talking about some of the teachings from Bhikkhu Bodhi, who in this country is one of our eminent scholars and monk and has written extensively on Buddhism. And you can Google him and all his material just pops right up. We're very fortunate to have his teachings in this time, very fortunate. And he's also a scholar of Pali. So he said the three things the, the Buddha awakened to in his enlightenment were um, that he could recollect his previous lives going back for thousands of years. And so he could see his past lives. That was one. Two, that he could see that the actions of all beings had a contribution to their death and rebirth. That's two. And the third one was the development of the Four Noble Truths, how um, craving and defilements uh, of greed, hatred, and diversion um, led to a rebirth of some kind. It kept us on the wheel of samsara. And that rebirth was not just life and death, but how we keep creating um, suffering for ourselves, stress, how we keep creating difficulties for ourselves. And so those were the three areas that he awakened into. Um, and so I'll read a little bit of some of what he's said, and then we'll talk about karma on a very practical level. Um, so I won't be reading past lives today. <laughs> there was a, a time in the, I think some of you can remember it. Maybe it was, was it the eighties or the nineties where it became very popular to go to a past life therapist. And we were all coming back, finding out that we were Kings and Queens and Napoleon and, and the head of Egyptian goddess. And we were Lincoln, we were important. And all that did was feed our egoic sense of self. Uh, if we didn't have that problem already. I was a very important person in my past life. So this is what he wrote, Bhikkhu Bodhi, about uh, the teachings on karma. If one sincerely goes for refuge, and by that 
um, the act of taking refuge. When I go for refuge in the Buddha, I place confidence in the Buddha as the fully enlightened one. When I investigate uh, his own account of his enlightenment, I find it includes recollection of previous lives, realization of karmic laws, uh, and that govern the process of rebirth. Um, however, a lot of us uh, are not in, put, inclined, we're not so interested. It doesn't, um, it doesn't motivate us to practice in the West, this line of thinking, but it is there. And he does make that point. Um, when I was studying with Trudy Goodman in the DPP program, the Dedicated Practitioner Program, we really did not focus on rebirth and past lives. What we focused on is a practical Buddhism, a Buddhism that we could live day to day that had meaning in our lives. And a lot of people call this, Stephen Batchelor calls this the, um, an agnostic Buddhism, a Buddhism that doesn't necessarily um, address uh, these the, the past life and um, birth and rebirth, but focuses on the Four Noble Truths and what suffering and dukkha is, what emptiness is, what awakening is. Um, and, um, and as karma and rebirth as the function and the formation of right view. And even Bhikkhu Bodhi admits this. He said, one should begin by examining the principles of the Buddhist teachings that can be verified um, with one's life in the here and now. So he encourages this. Um, we can observe ethical conduct and that when we observe ethical conduct, the quality of our life improves, right? When we embrace a healthy way of living, a way of living that includes no harm and care for others, we're uplifted, life improves. He said, we also learn that when we develop mindful insight and we understand the nature of greed, anger, aversion, delusion, and we're more mindful, we learn that we're also more skillful. It leads to greater happiness, peace, contentment, um, skillful action so that we can see the truth of karma unfolding in our lives by our practice. So um, Sally Armstrong, one of the teachers that I was sitting with for this month, said that um, we really misuse karma in the West. And uh, the Buddha really stressed not putting a lot of energy and time into trying to figure out karma. And she said that um, we're guilty of metaphysical malpractice. This is kind of timely, right? Um, because she says it's not very helpful to, uh, to use karma to reinforce this concept of blame or judgment on people's actions, not skillful. And that a lot of us will focus on what people did wrong and that they'll get their karma. And she says it's totally not uh, a helpful way of understanding uh, karma. Um, and as a result, we go into guilt, shame, and blame. 
And then we want to measure life, control life. Oh, if he did something bad, he should get this. So for those of us who have been thinking that someone is earning their karma, um, we also have to think about how many innocent people everywhere are suffering under difficult conditions that had nothing to do with their behavior, right? I think about um, so many people of color mistreated by police and the uh, justice system languishing in jails for uh, crimes they didn't commit or getting sentences that don't equal their um, action. Um, or people, you know, you don't have to look far to see suffering. So when we're weighing and measuring, we're not using karma skillfully. Um, so again, she warns us to not fall into that trap. Um, when we say in equanimity practice, all beings are the owners uh, or heir of their karma, happiness or unhappiness depends upon their actions, not upon my wishes for them. Um, what we're really saying is not, you are creating karma, you know, although all of us know that we do create some karma, and I'll talk about that next, but In that equanimity phrase, what we're really talking about, which we already know, that the only, um, the only locus of, of um, capacity, let's say, is looking inside at our own motivations and looking inside at our own actions, our own, own insight. And our happiness cannot depend upon making other people do what we want, you know? So we're developing an equanimity with living with the actions of others because we cannot control them. And yet we can also give the metta, which we can learn to wish well in our hearts, truly and sincerely. And this transforms our own heart and mind. So when the Buddha said, and, and some of us will argue, did the Buddha say this? Whatever, I like this phrase, this little paragraph. Um, the thought manifests as word. The word manifests as deed. The deed develops into habit. The habit hardens into character. So watch the thoughts and its ways with care and let it move from love born out of concern of all beings. So it's not blame and it's not retribution. It's moving a sense of um, in intention. You know, what is your intention? And is it free of greed, hatred, and delusion? And is it skillful? Does it lean into kindness and care of others? And it also recognizes impermanence and the changing nature of things. So this made me think about um, keep my notes together. So, so it does talk about cause and effect of action and that um, Bhikkhu Bodhi talks about the craving for a new existence that goes into rebirth and life, but, but the craving 
of a new existence gives rebirth to a new problem or a new sense of self or a new action. I learned this when I was in India in 1985. I went to meditate in India. And um, it's a good place to just watch the mind, to be aware of the field of the mind. And the first thing that happened for me in India was um, aversion to the food and the fear of getting sick because it's very easy back then to get sick uh, with parasites, which I did do and everybody kind of does at some point. And so um, my whole um, modus operandi in India was trying to get food that I didn't think would make me sick and to avert the food and the way they serve food that I thought would make me sick. And my mind became consumed with that. And um, what happened was uh, I was developing aversion and a kind of greed. There was a little food stall uh, in the ashram where I was sitting that made um, these uh, beautiful pancake kind of things. I can't remember the name of it right now. And um, it was kind of done in a very Western cleanliness kind of way. And they had utensils instead of your hand in India. And uh, I began to wonder how I could line up and be the first person to get the big pancake that they make. Um, and uh, my whole day became situated on how I could get to that part of the ashram, get online first and get the first one. I'm not kidding. And I, I would maneuver and I just couldn't wait to get that pancake. I was hungry. And one day I um, was elbowing my way to the front of the room and my teacher, my guru, uh, stood right in front of me and just stared right into my eyes. And I just felt that moment caught, greed got caught. But talk about karma. You know, um, there I am to sit and meditate and to use this time to go deep into the teachings. And my life became about pancakes and food and what I could get and how I could get there first. It's like we create the world we then have to live in. You know, we create this world and that whole time in India was pulling away the covers of these kalesas, of these, uh, these mind states to see the clear mind, you know? And so I went through the greed with the pancake, um, which I got caught at. She, she showed me right away what I was doing. You know, it just, it just took her little face going, hmm, you know? And then uh, the next uh, thing that happened was I, I got assigned, my work was, um, there was one place to uh, serve ice cream uh, on this ashram. It's a little, little freezer with a little bit of ice cream. And on holidays, people all over India would pour into the ashram. And I was the one person in the heat scooping ice cream onto a cone and handing it out. And there were like thousands of people there. The lines were so long, I thought I would die in the heat, right? And so this aversion and hatred took over. Why was I doing this? I'm in India, why am I an ice cream person? Why am I standing here with thousands of people in the heat, constantly scooping ice cream, person after person? Why am I the only one? Who set this up? Whose idea was this? And then it dawned on me that 
some of these people had never even seen ice cream. Some of these children, um, that this treat was a big portion of, of salary for many people who visited the ashram. They were looking forward to this for the whole year. And there were little children in front of me who had never seen ice cream, who never tasted it. And what I did with my karma was I created a world of aversion. And when I realized that this was a beautiful, sweet moment for all of these people, and this was their holiday, how they celebrated, and it was so sweet, what a beautiful offering, my heart could really open. And I didn't have that ugly karma, the, the, the Caucasian woman with the angry face muttering to herself, spooning out bad karma with ice cream, you know? So we look at our anger, our aversion, how it has some energy to it. It has energy internally and energy externally. When you are out and about in your world and you, you meet someone who's angry, contracted, upset, um, who really um, is delivering this anger in energy and facial expression, whether it's a family member or a coworker, it affects your day. You know, it affects the world around this person and it affects this person internally. So in a way we are creating these little lives um, moment by moment by moment. And um, when I could see that I was creating the anger, the aversion, and then living in it, when I come to practice, it could fall away and drop. It can end, there was cessation. And in that ending, there's, you're not creating more stories. You're not creating more karma. So, um, <clears throat> so uh, Jan Chosen, let me think of her name. Oh, come to me, a, a, a Zen practitioner, a teacher, Jan Chosen Bay. Um, she likes to say um, that there's energy that's karma, the energy of the three poisons, uh, greed, hatred, aversion, delusion. We're born with it, you know, dependent arising. We're born with a certain amount of greed. We're born with aversion and we're born with delusion and we carry it and it has some energies. And these energies bond our human existence moment by moment. Um, and so um, when we sit in stillness and we learn to let go, when the mind empties out and there's stillness, we stop transmitting these karmic streams that are moving through us all the time. And we begin to see clearly um, the, the um, fictional nature we get behind and we begin to see the world that we create. And um, that's the beautiful place of our practice is through the wisdom, through the mind stilling, our concentration practice, uh, we begin to see these illusions and how they take hold of us. And just in that pause, you start seeing it transforming your life. You're not so reactive. You don't just say whatever comes to your mouth. When you're angry, you don't just pour it out on another person. You think twice before you call someone names 
or you take out your frustration onto them. And you begin to see harm, the true nature of harm. And there's that pause, that non-reactivity. This is the beginning of working with karma. This is the ending of karma. It's the letting go and the release. So you begin to see that you're creating that gap in your practice and you're really going to slow down and soften the impulsive nature of the action. And our speech changes. Our speech changes. Um, our behavior changes. We lean in more towards kindness. And this wonderful aspect of karma spreads out from us in all directions through space and time. Um, so we're turning to wholesome states, whether it is through sila, right action, generosity, kindness through the Brahma Viharas, through emptiness experiences, through concentration experiences, through letting go, through wisdom, setting right action, right intention, we start to live our vow, our true heart's desire. Uh, the, the, um, the things that cover the heart, the illusions and the delusions and the wants and the shoulds start to fall away and the heart becomes more, more pure and we live our intention. We live who we are at the core and we find who we are at the core. Um, so I just want to say a couple of more things and then open it up to discussion because I'm sure there are a lot of discussions on this. Um, there's something else that Sally said that I wanted to share with you. So um, my, one of my teachers, um, which is uh, Almas, or uh, that's his pen name, Hamid Ali, he talks about becoming impeccable. And I feel like this fits in with the law of karma. When we are not internally aware of who we are, our heart's desire, the calling of our heart, and we superimpose it with egoic kinds of things like, oh, you know, if I had that car or that house somewhere, or if I had that position, you know, if we, we, when we move into a superficial world that is not connected to truly who we are, in a way we're creating karma and lives, and these, these um, karmic lives, these karmic streams. So, um, he talks about becoming impeccable, as in our actions reflect our true heart's desire, truth, honesty, care, love, um, our capacity, desire to awaken, our desire for sitting on the cushion, our desire to serve in community. Um, this is an unbinding of karma. We pull away all of these extraneous things and we live out who we are at the core. This is the beauty of a karma teaching to me. And karma also um, has within it this understanding of causes and conditions and impermanence, which is why we can't fool around with the word karma as in see you get what you deserve because it, 
the Buddhist teachers teach there are so many causes and conditions that go into something happening. When you look at the fires that are raging through California, um, when you see, say, a block in a town that where the fire hit, there are houses that are standing and houses that are burnt to the ground. Do we know why? Many causes and conditions go into moments like this beyond our capacity to know. And within it is impermanence, um, is the fact that life has a temporal, um, un, insubstantial kind of way with us. And Ajahn Chah used to say something like this, like you see this glass, you know, um, this glass, he already sees it as broken. You know, in time, at some point, the glass will break. It's not about what I did right or what I did wrong. You know what I mean? Things are impermanent. They are as they are. So equanimity really fits in with the teachings of karma. So uh, if there's anything else, and then we can open it up. And I, let's see if somebody had a question or something. Okay. Yeah. So, so I'll end here. Um, and I'd like you to see karma as the volitional piece of our intention. One of the things that I noticed about karma that I, that's been so interesting for me is the, the, the silver lining of the pandemic uh, in my life. And I know that it's been very hard for many, 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 many people. And, um, and oh yeah, there was another thing that I wanted to talk about too. Okay, so uh, there was more of an opportunity to sit because there's so many online retreats that are affordable. So I can sit all the time and live out that volition, live out that intention, and less opportunity to shop, go to restaurants, eat, you know, get, just get into sensory temporal pleasures. You know, I like it, I don't like it, I like it. Much more time to be contemplative. And there's something about that emptying out, emptying out of self, want, need, and really going for the truth of what's here, the way things are, that creates this beautiful, wholesome, clear mind, this sweetness uh, that radiates and that's open and free and energetic. And I could see this teaching more as a dropping away of what is temporal, what's impermanent, what isn't so real in our lives and letting go to find this shining, beautiful space of where the heart can dwell and the mind is clear. You know, so we don't have to look at karma as so much as this punishment idea. You know, it's more just about of shedding what isn't real, you know, what's not skillful. And guilt is not part of karma. Guilt is aversion. Many of us behave in ways we wish we hadn't, myself included, from trauma, collective trauma, ignorance in our communities and families from just life, experimenting with life. It's kind of how we learn, 
right? So it's not about blame and shame. It's not about looking back and blaming yourself. It's about shining the light in with your intentional volition of where you are and who you are today. One of my um, dear relatives who will remain nameless had uh, a long history of uh, alcohol uh, abuse and not so great actions, irresponsible, and created a lot of harm. And when he got sober um, in AA, he had a lot of kind of cleaning up the damage, which sometimes happens with addiction, yeah? And um, he had a lot of looking at himself to do, to clean out some of this behavior for years and years and years. But as he started to unpack the behavior, he saw the intergenerational abuse and damage and all the things he carried with him from generations, which we do. But the interesting thing about what he did is stays in my mind for this talk was um, he didn't like beat himself up with whips. He said to me, um, the way I'm gonna clean this up is by offering my service unconditionally to anyone. And he signed up to drive people who, were, who had cancer, but were alone. And he offered to drive them and sit with them for their chemotherapy and to be there for them, shop, do anything. And he did this for years, quietly, for years. And this was his form of um, taking care of his karma, you know, through right behavior, right action, service, loving heart. And he died in a beautiful, peaceful, sweet way, you know. Uh, I think that's in some ways a great example of wisdom, insight, karma in action, and healing the wounds that bind. So we end here. And let's just take a couple of moments just to breathe a bit and see what comes to mind for you about this very tricky <laughs> and difficult subject. Take a couple of breaths. May we heal from within whatever harms us, binds us, gets in the way of our true self. May we find healing, peace, freedom, no matter how long it takes. May we hold ourselves with compassion and kindness. May all the causes and conditions come together for our healing so that we can serve others from the heart. May all beings be free of suffering, their own and others. May the karma be healed.
So here's a question. Do we do breakout rooms or dialogue? <laughs> Somebody tell me what to do. Breakout rooms. Breakout rooms. Okay. So then um, uh, where is Don? Are you able to facilitate breakout rooms? <clears throat> yes. Okay. Uh, so you want three or four? Yeah, whatever. Three or okay. let's say four. No, let's do three. And let's do it for 10 minutes. No more than three. Okay. Okay. For no 10 more. Minutes. Okay. So here we go, everyone. Well, we, we don't have a huge amount of time and we have a few announcements. So does anybody have a burning question or a comment? I do. I'd like to thank you for entertaining my curiosity in presenting this topic. I had no idea brought up a version, um, but I'm glad you overcame it to, to share with the group. Thank you. See, see, that's what's called Kalyanamita, spiritual friends. Thank you for being my spiritual friend. Thank you for being my spiritual friend. <laughs> and I will ring Lotus at the end if you like. Oh, lovely. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Anybody else question, comment, burning desire? Because we'll. Uh, Kate. Yes, thank you, Wendy. I have a question. Um, I know you caveated that you're not a, a scholar of, of karmic things. But I was thinking about um, how. OK, I'll, I'll give a quick example. There are many things that we we do that then leave an impression on our minds, um, and then when something similar happens in the future, the action we took previously is going to sort of hang in our, our in our memory and inform what happens the second time around. You know, but what about karma in regards to like things that happen to us? You know, if if you think about what makes the groundwork you know, what makes that sort of background knowledge that informs how I respond to the world. You know, some of that is my doing and some of that is done unto me, so, or just happening. So I just wanted to ask about, you know, which is karma and which is not, or is it not really an important distinction? Um, well, you know, in Judaism, there, there was, there is a saying, called like the sins of the father are carried by the son. Um, and so a lot of our karma is a collective karma. It's collective from our society, our ancestors, our, nat our nation, our country. If you look at global warming and, and uh, right, there's a collective karma to that, right? It's not one person. So um, that's why karma is so complex. It's so complex. It's our genes, it's our training, it's our experiences, it's our economic background, it's our culture, our society, our race, our religion, um, the time we're born in. There's so many causes and conditions. But you're right, in a way you do have, there's like past karma like a karma that you develop that you bring forward like if i stay up all night let's just say watching movies then i don't sleep and maybe i watch scary movies that 
give me too much adrenaline and get me overexcited. That karma impacts how I function in the day, how aware, how awake I am, how skillful I am, right? So we do, our actions do carry a karma. Um, JD, did you want to share what you, you shared? I thought that was really sweet. If, only if you want to. <laughs> sure, yeah. Uh, in the vein of what you're talking about right now, all the causes and conditions. Uh, I just, this is a, uh, something for me that I've considered a lot, particularly in recent years. And just in the, in the sort of inspiration of the, the first really inspirational book that I read, uh, it's called A Gradual Awakening by a, a writer and practitioner named Stephen Levine, who did a lot of work with death and dying, and it's also a poet, really wonderful person. And I, I think of this, this topic, karma, in that vein, uh, particularly around uh, coming to an understanding that there's so many, as Wendy talked about, causes and conditions in my life, both past and present, that arise, that affect, you know, what I say and what I think and how I behave, if I can hold that without holding it in a, in a really tight way, grasping at it, that I've got it now, that, you know, that my, my intention is something that I figured it out, you know, and this is, it's going to be this way forever. Instead, letting it unfold as I go through my days, uh, just noticing when I, when what I say or what I think or what I, how I interact with another person or what I do, with you know, a little less shame and self-criticism, if I feel like I'm out of alignment, just noticing, does it feel like I'm out of alignment in this moment? And holding it lightly, you know, you know, oh, that, you know, that doesn't feel so skillful, or maybe that's not my coming from my deepest self or my my greatest heart's desire. And simply just resetting, you know, maybe at the end of the day or even in the moment, reflecting, how did that feel? you know, off balance or out of alignment for me and just resetting and just resetting and resetting my intention slowly every day as I move forward and letting my life unfold, just letting it unfold before me, uh, knowing that um, I don't have it all figured out today. You know, I don't have it all mastered in this moment. And that helps me to, to uh, uh, let go particularly because Characterologically, as Wendy talked talked about, I think even epigenetic, epigenetically for me, coming through the generations, there's a lot of shame and self criticism. So uh, I try to I try to let go of that, to hold it lightly, and uh, find a way to work with that for myself that I can just allow it to unfold, and keep moving forward. So that's that's what we shared when we were talking in our small group and. Uh, I, and I, as I expressed to Wendy, I so appreciated today's talk because it was really resonant with me in the ways that I just talked about and, and Wendy shared as well. So yeah, it was wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Um, okay, so we, it's time to go and have a wonderful, wonderful day, week till we meet again. Uh, may the May the beautiful nature and our efforts and insights of this group spread out to the world and contribute to the happiness of all beings. May all beings be happy, peaceful, free. May it be so.
You have just listened to a recording from Insight LA in Long Beach. For more information, please visit us at insightla.org.